0: You're listening to the podcast at the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi folks and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Happy 2020. This is episode seventy-three and it features a conversation with Bruce Spinkowitz, the 2020 chair for the ASA Biopharmaceutical Section. We spend some time talking about the Japanese regulatory environment, some challenges for statistics departments spread across the globe and Bruce's hopes and plans for the section in 2020. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. And now let's start the show. Hi folks, today I'm talking with Bruce Binkowitz, Vice President of Biometrics at Shinogi. He's the 2020 chair for the ASA biopharmaceutical section. Good afternoon Bruce and thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks Richard, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak with you uh on the podcast.
0: Yeah and I uh, I appreciate passing the baton to you uh in 2020. Um, so uh looking forward to um you know seeing Uh, what happens with uh, the biopharmaceutical section uh, moving forward. But uh, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. You participated in one of our earliest episodes, Episode 6, way back in 2013, where you and Lily Yu discussed the 2013 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop. It was so old, uh, we didn't even call it the Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop (laughs) back then. Um, so, can you remind us uh, how, how you became interested in statistics and how you went on this long journey uh, to get to where you are?
1: Sure. Uh, and it's great to be back on the podcast after more than 60 episodes later, um, which I really think is a tribute to you and the value of the podcast to the biofarm section. Um, so, how did I become interested in statistics? Well. I think like most people, when I was growing up, I had no idea what statistics really was beyond what I saw reported on TV for sports and maybe the occasional election polls with the mythical margins of error. Um, But in looking back, I did love playing stratomatic baseball as a kid and keeping all the team stats, figuring out how the information on the cards and the probabilities resulted in accurate player profiles. Uh, based on the real life player stats. So in retrospect, I think that was probably the beginning of my interest in statistics. Um, I do know that early on, I had a natural affinity for math, and those courses came most easily to me throughout grammar school and, and high school. So when I arrived at Rutgers College, I thought it would become an engineering or math major. Um, I started taking math courses, and I liked them. Um, and then, as a math major, Rutgers required math majors to take at least one course from the statistics department. So I took survey sampling, and and I really liked it, and I was hooked. So I changed to an interdisciplinary math and statistics major, and then decided to go on to graduate school. Where I uh, went to the University of Florida. I really enjoyed my coursework, um, and when it came time to graduate, uh, Professor Raymond Latell. Uh, He of the SAS Statistics Regression and GLM uh, SAS Books fame um, took me to breakfast one morning um, and told me to describe to him the type of statistics that I enjoy the most. And when I was done describing all that, he looked at me and said, you want to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And I said, okay. Uh, Then he told me that he plays golf with many of the heads of the industry industry Uh, statistics department. So when I contact them, use his name, and I did, and it was amazing how many doors flew open once I dropped his name. Um, And 34 years later, uh, the rest is history. I'm still in the industry, and I'm I'm still enjoying my job.
0: So do you think that was a very influential conversation that you had? And and do you think back on I mean, you mentioned being interested in survey sampling, and I I guess that would have led to working on various large surveys. Um, Do you you think about that at some point, making that switch to to going into the pharmaceutical industry versus your your interest in that topic?
1: Yeah, I I did think uh, about that because that was my introduction, and I was very interested in that. So when I got to graduate school, of course, I was looking to learn more about that, but then... I think at that point, because you have to take a variety of courses in, in graduate school, it really opened my eyes much more so to what statistics was and the broad spectrum of topics it applied to. Uh, and uh, I, it wasn't hard for me to make the switch away from my interest in survey sampling to what uh, Dr. Littell told me was uh, more pharmaceutical-oriented and biostatistics.
0: Interesting. and. and... What were some of those things you remember um, liking or telling him that you liked about statistics that made him say, oh, you should go into pharma?
1: Yeah, it was definitely study design. I uh, really liked the study design course that I had. I really enjoyed using SAS uh, and uh, using uh, a lot of the the modeling techniques that were taught in the, in the SAS courses. And uh, I was more interested, I think, at the time, in just uh, some of the techniques we were learning uh, about applications, much more so than uh, the theory uh, of the uh, the theory courses. I always found the app the applied courses to be to be more interesting to me.
0: Yeah, those all sound like good reasons to go into pharma. Um, yeah. So, you spent 30 years in, in big pharma um, at Merck and uh, Company. And then uh, I think within the last few years, you moved uh, to the Japanese pharmaceutical company, Shinogi. And can you describe what your current role is at Shinogi and maybe discuss some of the few differences you've noticed between these two companies?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been at Shinogi now for about two years, nine months. Uh, My current role is vice president of biometrics at Shinogi Inc, which means that I lead the department containing the statisticians, the stat programmers, and data managers in the United States. There's a similar department in Osaka, Japan, and we work together globally on projects. Since I arrived at Shinogi, we've really made great strides away from what was when I arrived, a very separate but equal approach where there wasn't much collaboration at all between the U.S. and Japan. Uh, and we've been working hard to break all that down and achieve what my company calls Shinogi Oneness, which is basically taking a global approach to drug development and not thinking about the regional aspects of, of where we all are, but to to work together broadly um, as a single company. Uh, and that's that's been a, a very challenging, a very rewarding experience to move through that. And compared to my time at Merck, I think what both companies do is the same. It's drug development. It emphasizes the safety of the patients in the trials and the quality and integrity of the data. Uh, and and the results and the goals are all to improve public health. So there's great science in common between Merck and Shinogi. Um, Shinogi's been around for 140 years in Japan, uh, and they have a great reputation. It's just that their reputation globally is now finally uh, growing. Um, but the uh, the science in Shinogi has always been there historically. Uh, it's how the work gets done is very different. It's a smaller company versus a larger company. It's the Japanese culture versus the United States culture. And I've had to take the skills I learned at Merck and apply them differently. I'm challenged to do the same sort of work I did at Merck with, for example, with less resources at Shinogi. And I found that creative challenge to be really stimulating and fun and the innovation it leads to, as well as the versatility and the staff skill sets I need to hire, uh, is very different than in big pharma. Um, I also think it's fascinating, and leading an organization in a company where the employees span opposite ends of the culture map is one of the most fascinating and eye-opening experiences of my career. Um, I really advise everyone to diversify their cultural exposure. It really broadens your thinking and, and gives you really good perspectives on things, and, and Perspectives I just never had working just for Merck. Well,
0: that's really interesting. And if I recall, you were very involved with uh, multi-regional clinical trials um, in the past, and at least from you know trying to bring these two different, um, separate but equal departments together to, to sort of address things, I guess at a global level. Do you do you feel like that experience? Um, and working and and trying to understand multi-regional clinical trials helped out in in trying to do the 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 work aspects uh, between these two departments.
1: Yeah, it certainly gave me a basis that there's different perspectives from different health authorities, and uh, the way a U.S. company may focus on FDA or a European company may focus on EMA. The Japanese companies are focusing on PMDA. So I did understand that the way those interactions take place with the agencies are going to shape the priorities and and the work processes that are needed to satisfy the agencies that are viewed as the priority. So I knew there was going to be disconnects between uh, a U.S.-based group that was built by Shinogi to help file trials and and NDAs with the FDA versus the group that has always done things in Japan the trials have been in Japan uh and the filings have been with PMDA as opposed to global trials where uh the US group was handling more of those so there was definitely a basis of difference in experience that I knew from the outset that we were just going to have to uh, address and and make transparent so everybody understood that we're all coming from different assumptions, and we were going to have to overcome those before uh, we really could start to uh, collaborate.
0: Well, that's interesting. And you brought up the, the PMDA, and I imagine you have a much greater exposure to PMDA Um, and just the Japanese regulatory environment in general, and um, what are some of the major differences um, from your experience that you would compare to, say, the FDA or, or EMA?
1: Yeah, I certainly have more exposure now to PMDA than I did in my previous job. It's not always direct exposure because... There's a language uh, that I don't speak, uh, but my colleagues in Japan do, and they converse with the PMDA, and they understand the subtleties that I'm still learning in that interaction. But the Japanese pharmaceutical market is very important for Shinogi. Um, And as I said before, Shinogi's existed for 140 years with great success in Japan. Uh, So there's always going to be an emphasis on understanding the needs of the PMDA, Uh, more so than I ever experienced at at Merck. So that makes for a lot of new challenges uh, for us to consider because we do also have to consider uh, what FDA thinks and wants in our trial. trial. So, uh, for example, uh, CDIS data set requirements are very similar between PMDA and FDA, um, but they're not exactly the same. And rather than having to create two completely different sets of data so we can do filings with both the FDA and PMDA, we've created a process that produces data sets that are accepted by both agencies. Uh, in fact, our programmers from Japan and the U.S. jointly presented this idea uh, at this past year's PharmaSug. So I've learned that there is uh, needs... That are in common between both agencies, and we're trying to figure out the most efficient way to satisfy those without uh, basically just doing everything uh, twice. Um, and I think that's been an important challenge for us to understand. Uh, FDA has various guidances, PMDA has guidances, and we need to understand when those overlap and when they're different. And like you mentioned earlier, this is where a lot of my experience for multi-regional clinical trials uh, comes into play, much more so than I ever really uh, thought it would, but it does give me a much better sense of where uh, there's commonalities in, in guidances uh, and where uh, we're going to need to, when we do a trial, that will include, for example, uh, patients in the United States and patients in Japan, where we need to consider uh, the global implications of that and how that data will be accepted by both FDA and PMDA.
0: That sounds interesting. Um, that's great that uh, you get so much uh, new exposure to uh, a different side of the, the business than you have in your past. Um, we mentioned earlier that uh You will be the 2020 chair of the biopharmaceutical section, and congratulations to you on that. Uh, And you've served as the chair-elect over the last year, and you've had the opportunity to observe the activities of the executive (laughs) committee and all of the various subcommittees uh, that that do all of the work um, to make the biopharmaceutical section what it is. Uh, What are your initial impressions of the the section in supporting statisticians in the medical product industry?
1: Thanks, Richard. Yeah, it's really one of the great honors of my career that the section elected me to be chair and trust me with making sure the section continues to be a valuable asset to their ASA and career experience. Uh, Regarding the executive committee. Uh, it's very impressive, the dedication of the EC to the section. And the committee definitely cares about the section member experience. Uh, I, I think the amount of work behind the scenes that drives the benefits and opportunities that the section members receive uh, is, it just blows me away sometimes. Uh, it, and, you know, it takes volunteers, people have to dedicate their time. Uh, and uh, it's, it's all, as I said before, very impressive to me that this group of people dedicates themselves to the section. Um, and a lot of the work, as I said, people don't really see it. They don't really know. Um, and that's fine uh, because I think there's a fulfillment of uh, the people on the committees uh, that serve the section um, in watching just how successful we are. Uh, it's all big and somewhat daunting as the incoming chair. Uh, I'm glad I had your example to follow to keep this big shift moving in the right direction. Um, I do want to say to the listeners of this podcast, if you think you have new and better ideas for the way the section can support uh, your interest or interest of statisticians in the medical product industry, please let me or any members of the executive committee know. Um, You can Google the executive committee biopharm section webpage and you can see who we are.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for the kind words, Bruce. Um, so I was standing on uh, big shoulders myself. <laughs> as I'm sure it sure, uh, happens as we uh, make our way through the uh, the three years as chair. Um, but at our transition meeting uh, with the biopharmaceutical section, uh, one of the interesting topics that came up and I think has come up a lot um, with Lissa Lange talking about statistical leadership uh, when she was um, – ASA president um, was a statistical leadership, um, and what role do you think the executive committee uh, have in developing leaders um, uh, in the medical product industry?
1: Yeah, that that's a great question, and it's one that's near and dear to my heart. Not only about biofarm section executive committee, but in general, in my career, uh, about leadership. Um, and I also know it's important uh, to you as well. And I think uh, there's many people on executive committee who who feel the same way. And I think that's, that's going to be really good as we move forward. Um, you already initiated some ideas, and I fully support those. And I intend to make sure that they grow and follow through on those, as well as new ideas about leadership. Um, And as you said, I think the section can do this in conjunction with the overall effort that ASA is conducting regarding leadership. Uh, You did mention Lissa Lavange and the ASA Leadership Institute Um, I think it was about a year ago in December of 2018 that Amstat News ran an article on the Leadership Institute, so people can go back and look at that if they want to uh, learn more. I know I recently went back and read it so I could have a better feel for what was going on at the ASA level to make sure that uh, the biopharmaceutical section is aligning with those. Um, But we also have an opportunity within the section uh, to create something that is more applicable to people who are in the medical product industry. And to that end, we're creating a leadership and practice committee uh, that can help uh, us as an executive committee understand exactly what we uh, want to do and how we can implement that and I know just from casual conversations over the last six months that there are many senior leaders within the industry that are interested in helping this effort as well as uh, at health authorities. It seems to be a universal need, so I'm sure we're going to have broad, uh, diverse support. Uh, and I think that, that diverse support is just going to begin with the executive committee. One of my goals as chair for the EC is to better understand and recognize the diversity of the section so we can serve them better. Um, and when I say diversity, I don't just mean important aspects of diversity such as ethnic or age or gender definitions. Uh, I also mean that the section is made up of both industry and government statisticians, that there's big pharma and there's not so big pharma. Um, and of course, students, uh, you know, the executive committee has no student members but we really need to consider how we reach out to students to support them, to provide them opportunities for exposure at our meetings, and to continue to offer opportunities for monetary support, and especially when you get back to the idea of leadership, uh, training people early on in their career about the ideas and leadership is, is where uh, you really want to get to them. You don't want to wait until somebody's been around as long as I have before you start to uh, offer them opportunities and leadership.
0: No, that's great that's uh, exciting um you know th- to get more student involvement uh, you know i think this is one of the things that um you know the larger asa is you know struggles with how do you get uh, students involved and give them opportunities and you know show that you know the asa is a, a way to develop these leadership skills and you know connections to other statisticians that they work with um Yeah, agree. For collaboration purposes. Uh, So, in terms of leadership, what would you say is your one insight that um, you've learned along the way that's most shaped your leadership style?
1: Yeah, picking out one is probably hard. Right now, my office. (laughs) Yeah, well, right now, my office, I have about seven different uh, 8.5 by 11 pieces of paper printed off with different leadership sayings on on them. So uh, uh, often when I'm sitting in my office and having discussions with people in my group and they say something, I point to one of those uh, to kind of emphasize a point. But I think the most important one to me and the one that I was doing without even realizing, I think early on in my career, that it was going to shape my leadership style was to treat others like I want to be treated. Uh, To me, that means you respect people, you communicate well with them, and um, when you have knowledge, you don't be afraid to to share it. Uh, You know, and as I got older, that means to mentor people. I've met too many people who think that knowledge is is power and they withhold it, um, and that doesn't really make for creating better careers, career development for people who report to you, and it doesn't make for a a good, uh, efficient uh, department either, so that's always a battle that I'm I'm fighting is uh, open communication and sharing of information. Um, And again, I think good leaders don't really create followers. Uh, Good leaders create future leaders. That's one of the signs hanging my office. I enjoy mentoring. And so our section has a mentoring program, which I encourage our listeners to become part of that program, either as a, a mentor or a mentee. I've been a mentor now for four years, and I, it's a really rewarding and educational experience for me. I think I learn as much from the mentee as, as uh, I think she learns from me. Uh, and if I can pro- provide opportunities and position the future leaders of the biopharmaceuticals section well, especially those on EC, so they can serve the section and eventually lead the section, uh, long after I'm not... Part of the executive committee then I will have considered my uh year as chair to be a success
0: yeah that's uh that's an interesting uh and that's a nice quote to um to have on your wall that uh, good leaders create future leaders um, I, I like that that's really good um, so the regulatory industry statistics workshop uh we talked a little bit about it earlier it's it's our major events uh, of every year uh, and we've seen the last three years that this workshop has sold out uh, And the 2019 workshop sold out about a week or so after the earlier bird enrollment ended why do you think the workshop has become so successful um, with the larger statistical community and are there any plans for 2020 that you're aware of
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing up the workshop. It really is an important event for our section. And uh, I think a lot of things go through my mind uh, as you ask that question. I think, first of all, the answer to the question is in uh, the name, its regulatory and its industry together. Um, And the result, I think, has always been a synergy that drives the agenda. Um, It's in the biopharmaceutical arena, so it's diverse enough to be interesting, but also homogeneous enough to create commonalities that a conference like, I think, JSM isn't built to do. And so the workshop seems to find a sweet spot for members of the biopharm section uh, and statisticians beyond the section. It's focused on medical products, so the attendees know what they're getting when they show up. Um, but uh, it's And so it's also unlikely that any single time slot at The workshop is going to have no topics that are of interest to an attendee. There's always going to be at least one that you want to go attend. Um, And even those individual sessions are designed for diversity of opinions. They have academic health authority and industry points of view being presented. And I think that's that's a great characteristic of the workshop. So you can hear from regulators about what they're thinking, sometimes even before the guidances uh, that they're talking about are actually out. Um, it's also a good place to hear from your colleagues in industry and a lot of good information you can take back to where you work. So the cross fertilization is very valuable. And, you know, realistically, the workshop is affordable compared to a lot of other statistical conferences. Um, and with the biopharm section, uh, involvement in this, uh, you know, we aim to keep this, this workshop affordable. Um, I also think it's a success because, uh, there's a lot of good people who have worked throughout the history of this this workshop on the steering committee, uh, as co-chairs, uh, and uh, everybody has looked at it, and, and they've done their own personal little tweaks, so there's really a continuous improvement uh, to what's gone on. Some people have piloted things when they don't work. Uh, we've moved on, but it's always worth trying some experiments. And it's all volunteers that have built up the workshop for the years. Uh, It's very inclusive, the workshop. It's not like some uh, of the stat conferences I've been to, which are put together by a very small, fixed organizing committee that never changes over years. This is very open for people to get involved with. Um, So there's an influx of new ideas. uh, And the workshop has a longstanding good reputation that brings people back year after year after year to hear the presentations, but also it's an opportunity to see people you don't get to see that often, a place to make new friends, and of course to network because uh, I'm sure most attendees have missed at least one session during a workshop because of the wonderful networking opportunities um, I know I have. And I think you also asked about uh, sharing plans for 2020. So one of the new ideas for the 2020 workshop is going to be a new location. As you noted, the workshop has sold out for three years in a row. Um, And this year it sold out shortly after the early bird enrollment ended. So we're thrilled that the workshop is in such demand. But we're also disappointed whenever we have to turn people away because we've reached capacity. So to address this, the executive committee has had a subcommittee looking into improving the workshop, which I know you've contributed to. And one of the things they looked at was... Uh, the venue and the ability to try to up the attendance capacity. Uh, It's been limited by the venue that we've had. So to increase the attendance, uh, we need to move the workshop. And towards that end, the workshop's going to be moving in September of 2020. um, And uh, it's going to be staying in the Washington, D.C. area, because that's, I think, been a root of the success of the workshop But we're gonna move to a bigger hotel, the Bethesda North Marriott Hotel. And this will give us an opportunity to increase the attendance. It's a little scary to be messing with the success of the workshop. But as I said, we had a committee that did a lot of good work and careful consideration. And we believe that this move will position the workshop to be both bigger and better in 2020. Um, Feedback from attendees at the workshop is always really important, and especially after this move, I'd encourage everybody who attends the September 2020 Regulatory Industry Stat Workshop to fill out the attendee survey about the workshop to give us feedback. And I think the last point I want to make about the growth of the workshop is uh, something that I just saw yesterday in the December issue of the Amstat News in what the Amstead News terms the decade of statistics, uh, which continues with strong growth in the number of statistics and biostat degrees awarded annually. It said that the increase was 17% from 2017 to 2018 for bachelor's degrees, 5% for master's, and 11% for doctoral degrees. Um, And since 2010, the number of master's degrees has doubled, and the number of doctoral degrees is up 50%. Uh, I don't know how many of these graduates have headed into the medical products industry, but clearly uh, the base is growing, um, which means people interested in a workshop like the regulatory industry workshop are going to grow in numbers. And so we need to have the foresight to be able to accommodate what looks like a bolus of statisticians uh, that'll be coming and interested in to the workshop. So the biofarm section leadership really needs to keep this in mind. Um, Also, For the last few years, and this is probably uh, somehow positively uh, concordant with uh, the increase in statistics degrees, U.S. News and World Report has constantly ranked statisticians as one of the most desirable jobs. Um, And so I think there's a lot of interest in becoming a statistician more so over the last 10 years than there has been. Um, And that's something that we're going to have to make sure that our, our workshop accommodates.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. Thank you for sharing all those uh, details and the statistics about um, how many more statisticians uh, are going to be coming. So it's uh, it's nice to to see that we will at least be able to house some of them um, at the at the workshop. Um, and I guess for those people who are. are Disappointed and not upset that we won't be directly across the street from the the hot and juicy crawfish restaurant. <laughs> it will be a, a, a short uh, metro ride uh, along the red yeah. line uh, to get back to it, so um, it'll still yeah. be a possibility.
1: <laughs> yeah, a- a- absolutely. We're we not leaving the greater Washington, D.C. area. As you said, you just get on the red line, and, and uh, 15, 20 minutes later, you can go back to your favorite restaurants. <laughs> um,
0: so one of the... Uh, things that's also been a, a, a real positive uh, benefit of uh, being with the section over the last few years um, have been the scientific working groups. And several years ago, you were chair of the scientific working group proposal committee. And at the time, you had a pretty regular joke that no, was, no one was sending you any proposals. And now we're up to 10 scientific working groups. So what can we do to ensure the health of our scientific working groups, and and what more do you think the section can do to offer support to uh, these working groups?
1: Yeah, I was uh, an original chair of the Scientific Working Group Proposal Committee, which for a while I think was more like the Scientific Working Group No Proposal Committee. It was a very easy job to do because there were no proposals. Um, But we had launched the idea of scientific working groups under... Uh, the organization, and I was involved because I had done that under other organizations' umbrellas. Um, And having done that, looking at the landscape that the ASA BioPharm section provided, I really believe that our section was a very fertile place to grow the ideas for working groups so people across the medical products industry could work together towards common innovations and improvements in stat science. Um, So we just had to be patient and constantly putting the word out, and it turned out that we were correct. Um, to paraphrase from one of my favorite mi- movies, uh, we built it, and they did come. And as you noted, we now have 10 scientific working groups uh, resulting in giving us the challenge that we always wanted, which is how we support and ensure the health of these scientific working groups. Uh, we, meet to, we need to make sure that there's enough governance to maintain and support the working groups, but certainly uh, we don't want to micromanage them. So beginning in 2020, the scientific working group proposal subcommittee of our section is implementing what they're calling a health check questionnaire for each scientific working group to fill out, feed the information on their status back to the scientific working proposal committee, as well as to the executive committee. You know, we want to make sure that the groups are following their charters, um, And that if they've deviated from that, that we understand that and we understand why uh, from the charter they were commissioned under that they've they've moved to other objectives. Um, We also want to avoid groups that exist in name only because not only is that going to devalue the entire scientific working group effort, but it's also not fair to those working groups and participants who are actually creating content uh, and value. So the oversight is necessary. There's always room for more working groups. If anybody listening has ideas about a new scientific working group, uh, you can Google ASA biopharmaceutical section scientific working groups, and you'll get the link to the page on the biopharm section website that will tell you how to create and submit proposals.
0: And what other initiatives do you have uh, planned for 2020 as uh, chair of the biopharmaceutical section?
1: Yeah, we've already discussed my ideas around diversity. I definitely think we have to do student support, the scientific working group oversight, the expansion of the regulatory industry statistical workshop and the leadership initiatives. So in addition to those, uh, you know, one that comes to mind is continuing the section outreach Uh, I'm very open to making sure that we continue to partner with ASA sections, the other sections, any other organizations such as the Drug Information Association or PSI. Uh, And I'm also curious and and would like to try to build off some of the discussions we had at executive committee towards the end of this year about reaching out and forming a liaison with Japanese statisticians. Um, You did a podcast a while back with uh, Hamasaki-san, uh, which I really enjoyed, um, especially in how it pointed out the global commonalities and research that are needed. Um, so I think there could be some, something interesting to grow from, uh, working with Japanese statisticians, but I also think that's, that's gonna take some patience and structure to, to put together. Um, I'd like to revisit the role and give more responsibility to the at-large members that are nominated to the executive committee by each new chair every year. I think that's a place that we can put dynamic people and help drive executive committee initiatives uh, even after the chair is rotated off. Um, And also, uh, I don't think we can forget about 2021, which will be the 40th anniversary of our biopharm section. Uh, we want to make sure that we celebrate this right, and we have a subcommittee that's planning this, and they have a lot of good ideas. So uh, I'm looking forward to see what else they're they're coming up with, uh, because 40 years for a section, uh, I think that's pretty impressive, and we we really need to uh, to celebrate uh, what we've done and what we've become. Um, and then lastly, I don't think this is a new initiative. I think this is an initiative that, that you and all the other chairs that you said that you, you've built on and that I've seen, uh, have done, which is to consistently recognize the members and leaders of the section subcommittees, the statisticians to volunteer their time and effort to help the section serve the membership, uh, and, uh, it's just—it's an amazing group of people, um, and I think that it's up to the chair to constantly uh, not forget that there's a lot of people doing a lot of of, of really good work. Uh, for those people interested, there's an ASA Biopharmaceutical Section Executive Committee webpage that lists the the EC membership and also lists a lot of the committees that I'm talking about here. Um, there's a lot of talented people doing a lot of work. We have webinars, we have the biopharm report, we have online training, we have a YouTube channel, we have this podcast, um, scientific working groups, we have uh, a place for non-clinical biostaticians to get together um, and non-clinical biostatisticians in a conference that happens every other year. Um, As well as committees that we have that help work and support all the awards for the posters and presentations that happened at our meetings, and of course, scholarship committees for students. Uh, So there's an amazing amount of work that that goes on. Um, My plan is basically to let these people perform their roles, support them as needed, appreciate everything they do, and basically and otherwise stay out of their way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sometimes uh, I guess leading is uh, <laughs> staying out of people's way. <laughs> yeah. It's not broken. Don't fix it. Exactly. Um, so last question for you. Uh, we've talked a lot about the biopharmaceutical section and uh, all the good work that has happened that's going to continue to happen and, and will happen in the future. Um what changes do you envision happening in the medical product industry over the next five to ten years, and how do you think the the section will react to these changes to support statisticians
1: Yeah, so getting out my crystal ball um, and maybe to paraphrase from the investment world. Um, while past performance is not a predictor predictor of future success, I've learned over my more than 30 years as an industry statistician uh, that trends and fads are a constant. There's always something new in statistical methods, and that they're going to sort themselves out uh, eventually, so that the most useful survive and become part of our toolkit. So, for example, I remember years ago the hot topic was longitudinal modeling with the publication of. Papers in the mid-1980s by Liang and Zieger and Zeger and Liang uh, regarding generalized estimating equations. And that became the hot research topic at JSM. Uh, Now it's one of our toolkit methods for longitudinal data modeling. I remember Markov chain Monte Carlo methods uh, becoming popular as computers became able to do those in a realistic amount of time. And all the software programs that provided the MCMC sampling capabilities. And it seemed like every JSM presentation of somebody's dissertation included mention of bugs or wind bugs or open bugs. And now that's settled to become part of our toolkit. Uh, Adaptive designs, where at its height, some people were saying every trial should be an adaptive design. Now, of course, it's a lot less ubiquitous than that. Uh, But it's still a valuable design in our toolkit. So So what's hot now? Data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, using historical controls, real world data and real world evidence, data mining, scraping the Internet for information. Uh, Some of these terms aren't even well defined, but everybody thinks they need to jump in uh, before they lose a competitive advantage by not doing uh, these things. And amongst this, there are some very good and powerful new tools and techniques, and there's some very valuable information out there that we can use to enhance the medical product development. Um, Some of these are going to stick and become part of our toolkit. Uh, Some of these are going to fade. And I think over the next 5 to 10 years, that decision is going to be driven by the economic pressure on medical product development, particularly pricing, And also, as the baby boomer bolus moves through and beyond retirement, uh, it's going to change the uh, customer focus, uh, and it's going to force us to take a hard look at how we streamline product development. So the tools that are going to allow us to maximize the efficiency of what I think of as the information-to-data ratio, meaning how do we get the most information out of the least amount of data, um, or perhaps more accurately, the most information out of the least costly amount of data. Uh, I think anything that helps with that are going to be the tools that end up being added to the statistical toolkit over the next five to 10 years. But I also want to call back to what I said earlier about this being the decade of statistics, as quoted in the Amstat News, uh, and the boom in statistics degrees. Whether this level's off or continues to grow, and I'd bet on growth over plateauing right now. This increase in the numbers of trained statisticians is something that the biopharmaceutical executive committee has to monitor and react to support uh, statisticians. Uh, it's, it's time to have the leadership and practice growing now and it needs to be matured and ready to serve this bolus of statisticians. Uh, I also think um, we're gonna have to be ready to welcome them into the biopharm section by understanding their needs and being prepared for any growth that will hit our conferences and workshops. The EC is made up of statisticians, and I'm not really worried that the EC is going to be always able to do a great job in monitoring the evolution of statistical methodology through their industry connections and where the health authorities are going. Uh, I do think, though, future chairs are going to need to really focus on tracking the demographics of the section, um, because that's going to be really important uh, for the biop to react to changes to support statisticians.
0: Well, thanks so much, Bruce, for sharing your thoughts with me today and for um, discussing all the new and exciting ways that we're going to be uh, supporting statisticians in 2020. I wish you uh, success with your role as the biopharmaceutical section chair.
1: No, thank you, and I've got your
0: email and phone number, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will be. Uh, uh, I will be within easy reach. That's for sure. Greatly appreciated. There you have it, episode seventy-three with Bruce Binkowitz. I want to highlight that abstracts for posters and roundtables for the two thousand twenty regulatory industry statistics workshop are now being accepted. The 2020 workshop takes place September 23rd through the 25th at the Bethesda North Marriott Hotel and Conference Center. Come check out the new venue. Finally, if you have an idea for a podcast or have a question, send me an email at rzink at targetpharmasolutions.com. That's R-Z-I-N-K at targetpharmasolutions.com. Until next time.